I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Our guest today is Ken Shadlin, a political scientist and professor of development studies in the Department of International Development at the LSE. Welcome, Ken. We're delighted to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Fabrice. Uh, Joe, thanks a lot. Great to be here. Let's begin by reviewing the main argument of your book, Coalitions and Compliance, the Political Economy of Pharmaceutical Patents in Latin America, Oxford University Press, 2017. The book examines how patent policy differs in the three largest economies of the region, Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina. This may give us some insight to the current situation of these countries in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, sure, I'd love to talk about it. Uh, before I do, if I could just say quickly two things, one joking, one not joking. The joking one is that um, I'm only talking about the book because the film hasn't come out yet. They uh, started doing the filming, but production got slowed down because of the pandemic. Uh, so that's why I have to talk about it. But on a more serious note, I just wanted to say that as I was one of the founding members of this LASA panel years ago, it's really nice to see you guys doing something really constructive and intellectually constructive with it. It's great to see. And it's an honor to be part of the, uh, the series. So um, on a more serious note about my book, I mean, let me just start by making sure that we all understand since sometimes I think the number of people in the world that think about patents and understand about patents is about four, um, just make sure we're all on the same page, that patents are a form of intellectual property. They're government-granted rights of exclusion over an invention. If I have a patent over some technology in a country, and they're only granted country by country, if I have a patent over some technology in a country, I am the only person who can produce it in that country, import it to that country, sell it in that country, manufacture it in that country, anything in that country. It's just me. Um, it's sort of a time delimited monopoly that belongs to me or someone that I license the rights to. It's the stuff in patents gets super technical and I've spent most of my career trying to make the technical not technical because what it really is at the end of the day is super political. It's about the terms under which knowledge becomes owned and the terms under which privately owned knowledge gets used. And that's intensely political. So the background to this, uh, before getting into the nuts and bolts of my book, Joe, is that throughout Latin America, as of say the end of the 1980s, if you invented a new machine or a new electrical device or just about anything, you could get a patent on that invention in just about any country of Latin America, frankly, in just about any country in the world. However, if you invented a new drug, you could not get a patent. Pharmaceuticals were not patentable in almost anywhere in Latin America, or frankly, almost anywhere in what we call the global South. And the reason why is that countries were worried that giving these private rights of exclusion on the technology of new drugs would hurt local industries, and they were worried it would drive up the price of drugs, it would destroy the country's health budgets, and generally it would be bad for the economies, the societies, health, everything. And then what happens is that there's this major change in the 1980s and 1990s. 
And that is that if you want to be part, you being a country, if you want to be part of the international trade system, you need to start allowing patents on pharmaceutical products. You can no longer say these are not patentable. The cornerstone of this was an agreement in the World Trade Organization, but it came before that bilaterally, particularly from the UN, US too. This is a giant, giant, giant change. And it's the point of departure for my book. I don't explain in the book where that came from. I explain it, but it's not the focus. I rely on other people's research because a million things have been written about that. And it applied to all countries, not just Latin American countries. What I wanna know is how they reacted to this giant change. Like I say, it's the point of departure. I wanna know how do countries respond to this new global imperative that they do something start granting patents on pharmaceuticals that they otherwise would never have done. And the fact, without this external shock, none of these countries in Latin America would have started granting pharmaceutical patents in the 1990s. Frankly, in 2021, they still probably wouldn't be granting pharmaceutical patents, but they started doing so because of this external shock. And what I ask in my book is sort of, not if they did, did so, because that's totally overdetermined, they all did so but how they did so, because uh, they all did so really differently. Uh, like, and this is where you get into some of the details about how quickly they do so. And did they do so in ways that even if they started to do it sooner, will delay the effects of the, on the actual economies and the health system for another five or 10 years, or they did so in ways that will, you'll feel the effects immediately. Um, even if we start granting pharma patents in principle, how easy or difficult is it to get any given patent on a given drug? And once they start granting, how strong are the rights of the owners? Lots of details. Again, that details I don't think anybody in the world cares about except for me. But the point is these details are what the where the variation is. Now, if we could just take a step back, the reason why I think this is a cool topic and the reason why I wrote, it, I wrote a book about it is that in some way, this is sort of like a perfect laboratory experiment. Countries at roughly the same time are all forced to do something that they had previously resisted doing. And if left to their own devices, devices would not have done so on their own. And yet they all do so very, in very different ways. So what I do in the book, like it's, it's almost like a perfect experiment that was set up by the world. And so what I do in the book is I analyze the different responses in three Latin America's largest economies, Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico. I do so over two time periods. I do so in the 1990s, when essentially they're answering the question, okay, so what do we do now? How do we, how do we introduce a pharmaceutical patent system? How do we go from not allowing patents on drugs to allowing them? And then again, a second time period of the 2000s, in which it's sort of a period, I call it a period of self-reflection. Now that we have a pharmaceutical patent system, how do we want it to work? What sort of reform should we introduce for how this thing functions? So it's a fairly long book. There's six empirical chapters for each of the time periods. There's a chapter on Argentina, a chapter on Brazil, and a chapter in Mexico. Um, but what I do is I start at a general level trying to address sort of the big question even for people who don't care much about patents per se, focusing on things like the interactions between international and domestic politics and how events in one time period affect possibilities and events in subsequent periods. So there's sort of like a little path dependency argument that I have in the book, but it's very conditional. 
So like one of the headline findings is that, you know, pre-existing legacies of industrial development in the pharmaceutical sector matter a lot. The nature of trade relations and exports to the U.S. matter a lot, sometimes in really surprising ways. And the timing of the initial responses matter a lot. And things that we might ordinarily think might matter. So like things that I sort of call sort of off the shelf variables to explain variation that we invoke in political economy all the time. The ideologies and the preferences of the presidents, were they right wing or left wing? The, the, the relationships as we understand them between the executive and the, and the legislatures in each country. These sorts of things turn out not to matter very much. They don't really account for much variation. You know, so somebody like Carlos Menem in Argentina, he bossed Congress around left and right. He always got his way, but he lost here. So the arguments about what he wanted, you know, his foreign minister says, I want carnal relations with the US or whatever detail I said, um, and sort of how strongly they, the government wanted this. And the fact that he was, you know, it's delegate of democracy and he can rule by decree. None of that worked. He lost. So it's a very much a structural argument in my book. It's about the abilities of key actors, executives, rival segments of the pharmaceutical industries. At its core, my book is a conflict between these two sets of actors, the transnational sector who love patents and the national sectors who don't like patents. Um, sort of the abilities of these actors to construct coalitions in support of the outcomes that they want. And I try to explain all that in the first two chapters of the book in general terms. There's some diagrams of causal flows, some overall data, and then the rest of the book sort of drills down in much more detail at, at the cases. And just to turn the page, like how do the outcomes differ? Uh, I mean, I'll be really brief here, but I think the outcomes have implications to what we're experiencing right, or observing right now with COVID is that Mexico is a country that sort of completely over complies, does way more than what it was expected to do really early and continues to do so. Um, and Argentina is sort of the polar opposite. Argentina does the bare minimum. It does what it needs to do to keep itself out of trouble in the World Trade Organization and basically no more. And it continues to do that. So both of these are sort of polar opposite cases of both continuity within the cases. And Brazil is the interest, I, I, they're all interesting. Sorry, I shouldn't say that, but Brazil is analytically probably the most interesting of the three because Brazil completely over complies at the beginning. The, night, the first chapter on Brazil, the outcome looks a lot like the first chapter on Mexico and then completely reverses course or tries to reverse course in the 2000s. So in some ways, in the first time period, Brazil looks like Mexico. And in the second time period, Brazil looks like Argentina. And I guess the last thing I would say is that these differences really continue to matter. I mean, on one sense, if you look at this from outer space, all three of these countries have pharmaceutical patent systems they didn't used to. We could just stop the story there. That's a huge change. And if we wanted to just end the story right there, we could. But despite the fact they all have them, they all function and have features that are very different from each other. And these differences still continue to have really big and important effects on development in the country's health and so on. And so my book is really a book about sort of persistent cross-national divergence within this overarching period of, of convergence. Um, and as I watch COVID play out in the region, uh, I, 
I guess I would say I'm glad I wrote the book because it helps me understand a lot of what's going on in the region right now. Overall, um, having written the book, um, and I'm sure following the headlines, in your opinion, how is the region dealing with the procurement, development, and distribution of COVID vaccines at the moment? Do you have any thoughts on that? So it's a total disaster. And as any listener of this will know, it's a total disaster. South Latin America is the worst place in the world right now. I mean, the U.S. is pretty bad. It's, it's just horrible. And there are incredibly high death rates. The economy has been destroyed. Uh, and we're going to be dealing with this for a long time. I mean, I think like when I was a PhD student, I started my PhD study in the late 1980s, and everybody was obsessed with debt crises. And I think we're going to be talking about COVID and COVID crises for a long time, maybe for the rest of my career. We can come back to that later if you want. Um, let me just talk about some immediate responses, not just not so much in terms of mitigation, like what they do for social distancing or not, of which there's been a lot of interesting variation, uh, but also the, ph the pharmaceutical responses. So countries in Latin America have two ways to procure vaccines. They can do it pulled procurement through an initiative that's run out of the WHO, it's called COVAX, people might've heard about it, in which uh, one agent basically buys the drugs collectively on behalf of, it's pool procurement. They buy them on behalf of everybody and the countries buy the drugs through them. Um, and most Latin American countries, if not all, are members of COVAX. Uh, they can also buy the drugs directly from the producers, just buy the, buy the vaccine from AstraZeneca, buy the vaccine from Moderna and so on. Um, most countries find that the pool scheme was delivering too little to date. In fact, the pool scheme hasn't really started to deliver drugs yet, vaccines yet. So most have decided to try to purchase vaccines directly instead. Um, but they're well at the back of the queue because uh, most, this is where it gets a bit tricky is that until recently, we didn't know what was gonna work. So it was just a lot of vaccines in development, but we didn't know what was gonna work. And so if you had a lot of money, you just basically bought a lot of everything, figuring you'll get something that works. But if you didn't have a lot of money, you didn't want to, be, you, didn't, you couldn't afford to buy a little bit of everything. And so they kind of waited to start buying a lot of drugs until they knew what was going to work. But that actually puts them way in the back of the queue. So, I mean, they're better off than a lot of countries that didn't buy anything. But like, if you just look at where vaccination is in Latin America relative to where it is in North America and Europe, uh, it's, you know, it's substantially behind. In terms of production, uh, this is the big problem. There's very little production of this. And the reason why is that vaccines are really, really hard to make. And there's just not a lot of production capabilities in the region. So there's some production going on in Brazil. Uh, there's a Chinese vaccine that's being done by a, a lab in Sao Paulo, the Butantan Institute. There's a vac the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines being produced in, in, in Rio at uh, Biomanguinhos, which is they're both state laboratories. Um, the most interesting one is the AstraZeneca vaccine is also being produced by a private firm in Argentina. A bio, it's actually a biosimilars firm. It has no experience at all making vaccines, but they've basically been taught how to make the vaccines from AstraZeneca. And they're making it, freezing it, and then shipping it to Mexico where it's going to be what's called fill and finish or finish and fill, where it's going to be, it's going to be put into the, into the vials and then AstraZeneca will distribute it. Um, what's interesting about that one is they started really early because the 
Carlos Slim Foundation just basically put the money and said, you guys start making it. If it turns out that this stuff is garbage and has to go into the toilet, you know, we'll take, we'll take the hit. Um, but there just isn't enough capacity in the region. And it's a real, it's a real problem. With treatments, a little bit different. Um, with treatments, there's a lot, obviously a lot more, there's a lot of capacity to make treatments. The problem with treatments is that the new ones have patents, which gets in the way. And the real problem with treatments is that there aren't any new treatments. Like, you know, we've had a lot of innovation on vaccines. We haven't had new treatments. Um, but in general, Joe, I guess what I would say is that the problem that countries in Latin America have, you know, I think it's a general problem that they have in many of the global economies, that they're not rich enough and they're not, they're not rich enough and they're not poor enough. Because if you're really poor, you're going to get the vaccines basically for free. And if you're really poor, you're going to get the treatments basically for free. And if you're a middle-income country, you're expected to fend for yourself as if you basically were the US or Canada or Britain. And they're not rich enough to play in the game. Neither Brazil or Argentina, any of these countries, even Chile, which is a high-income country, according to the World Bank, don't have the resources to participate in the procurement scheme as if they were a rich country, but they are treated as if they were because they're middle-income countries. And I, I think that's a broader problem with the global economy. Another interesting issue is that um, health issues seem to be increasingly uh, crossing several established regimes. And so, for example, you've got all of a sudden a number of international organizations, w uh, World Health Organization, World Trade Organization, World Intellectual Property Organization. Everybody's dealing with health issues. And I wonder if, um, from a Latin American perspective, um, what are the current main issues or what's the negotiating agenda? Is there a unified approach or as you studied um, in the past, all these individual um, policies? Um, is everybody um, you know, on, it, on, on their own or is there a sort of a consensus of what the regional approach uh, ought to be within uh, WHO, WTO and WIPO? Yeah, it's a really cool question. Um... Let's talk about them one at a time. First of all, you're absolutely right. Like it's these overarching health issues. And so they even have an annual meeting. They call it the trilateral meeting. It usually takes place in February in Geneva. That's talking about, and it's talking about intellectual property and health. Um, I was at it a couple of years ago. It was hosted at the WHO. It might, they might rotate it around, but yeah, they're all dealing with similar sets of issues. Why? WIPO is the one where there's probably the least amount of things going on, and there's probably the least to say, again, to the audience that WIPO is the World Intellectual Property Organization. It's a UN organization that deals with IP. Um, you know, the main part of WIPO is, is uh, it does a lot of data collection and information sharing, but the main part of WIPO is something that's called the Patent Cooperation Treaty. And this is, gets a bit nerdy, but essentially I said at the beginning that if I want to get a patent, I have to apply for it and get it in every country. The Patent Cooperation Treaty is like you just deposit it in one place and then it gets examined all over the world. It's like a, and then if you want to do that, it saves you a lot of, it saves you a lot of effort as the innovator. Um, and then you pay a lot of money for it to the to WIPO. So WIPO basically makes its money off this treaty. I don't know what share of it, but I'm sure it's a decent amount. And the thing is, not all the Latin American countries are members of this Patent Cooperation Treaty. Um, so Brazil is, Chile joined fairly recently, Mexico is, Argentina is not, Uruguay is not. Um, and so they don't really act collectively in WIPO. 
In the WHO, I don't think the Latin American countries have a history of acting collectively in the WHO. They have had a history. I mean, what, what the Latin American countries have is a regional WHO. It's the PAHO, uh, which has been a, historically a very important organization working with the national regulatory authorities and the health ministries throughout the region. Where PAHO is really interesting now is like, does it have a future? Because the Brazilian government and the US government, which are the two biggest funders, they basically killed it. They destroyed its budget. And so really, I think the question is like, will there be a future for PAHO? Um, and you know, we'll have to see. I suspect that with the Biden government, he's gonna be more willing to fork over some cat. The US will probably support PAHO again uh, and what Bolsonaro does following. The WTO is the most interesting one. That's why I saved it for the last of the three you asked about. I mean, it's super interesting and super complex. As we know, there's a new director general. She was announced yesterday uh, from Nigeria. First time there's ever been a woman director general. First time there's ever been an African director general. Lots of hopes and active expectations about what's going to happen. Um, the Latin American countries have been active participants. The previous director general, as you know, of course, was Brazilian until he resigned. The last ministerial meeting of the WTO was in Buenos Aires a couple of years ago. Latin American countries are some of the founding members and they've always been very active. The problem is right now the whole WTO agenda is unclear. The last round of negotiations essentially ended with a, with a, with a thud and they haven't been replaced. And the whole organization is basically essentially moribund because the Trump administration basically waged war on it. And so we sort of have to see what happens, what the US position is. I mean, in some ways I feel like the Latin American countries are all sitting around waiting to see what comes out of Washington. And in the meanwhile, a lot of the big issues in terms of trade for the Latin American countries has been regional bilateral agreements with the US, with the European Union, with Japan, with each other and so on. That's sort of where the action has been. Ken, you're, you're a man of uh, many talents. Let's um, shift focus and look at uh, another issue that you've worked on in the past, and that is uh, Mexico. Um, I wonder if you have any, any thoughts on, uh, on the current state of the political economy of Mexico, uh, especially with the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Um, uh, you wrote a book a couple of years ago looking primarily, if memory serves me right, at small and medium-sized uh, business. And I wonder how that sector and the economy in general has changed with, uh, with, this, new, uh, with this new NAFTA, so to speak. Yeah, so of course, Mexico is also one of the three case studies for my recent book. So I still think of myself as working on Mexico, but um, it's no longer like the front and center. Um, I mean, in a sense, the new agreement hasn't had much of effect at all. It just came into effect and it came into effect during the pandemic. Um, and so I don't, think, I don't think the new agreement has had enough time to have much of effect. Frankly, I don't think in terms of the agreement itself is gonna have that much of an effect because really it's not, there's not a whole lot different between what we're now calling USMCA and what used to be called uh, NAFTA. There's some important changes to the rules of origin in the automobile sector, which potentially could mean higher wages for auto workers in Mexico. It could potentially mean less jobs for auto workers in Mexico. But most likely, the firms, I think, as I understand, are going to basically pay the higher wages 
to comply with these new rules of origin. There's some changes to the system on sort of investor state dispute settlement. So hopefully the Mexican government will find itself uh, less frequently on the receiving end of arbitration cases taken by Canadian and American firms. But generally it didn't change a whole lot. Um, in the area that I work on, in all these trade agreements, there's always stuff on intellectual property and pharmaceuticals. They're always super contentious. This, this stuff all got stripped away. Um, at the last minute in December of, I guess it would have been December of 2019, I got my years confused, all the stuff on pharmaceuticals that you know, intellectual property and pharmaceuticals got stripped away by the US Congress. Um, so in a sense, this is no different than what NAFTA was. I think where this agreement is gonna have the biggest effect is just the precedent of it. And that you had one party to the agreement just rip it up and say, we're you're gonna come negotiate a new agreement with us or else this thing is garbage. And of course, that's always, we always knew that that could happen because these agreements are only as basically useful. They're only as strong as the commitment to live by them are, but all of international political economy is about essentially some degree of self-restraint. And countries give up a lot when they make these agreements, but they do so to get concessions. It's a trade-off. And I think the fact that this agreement was shown to be just very paper, it just, one country was able to just say, you come negotiate with us or else we're tearing up the whole darn thing. I think that is a, that precedent is gonna matter more than anything else. I also say, I realize it's a really long answer, Joe, but like the Mexican economy is a disaster and the Mexican economy is a disaster right now, not because of the USMCA, the Mexican economy is a disaster because of COVID and frankly, a government that seems to be completely unprepared to do anything other than talk about corruption. Um, there's no economic plan. It's, uh, and I, I, I can't blame USMCA for that. Um, this leads us to, um, to an, uh, a, rel a related issue. If you take a quick look at the flagship um, publications of all the multilateral organizations and even some of the major regional organizations in Latin America, innovation seems to be a really important theme. And uh, you just mentioned that the Mexican um, economy is, um, is going through a really hard time. I wonder from your vantage point, um, who in the region is actually um, doing some interesting um, policy regarding or the, the simple implementation of, um, of innovation, be it in technology, be it in biotech, be it in industrial policy. Um, is anything being done um, that um, pretends um, a better future for some of these economies? Yeah, so, you know, you hit on what I think is the million dollar question and probably the single most important question in Latin American political economy right now. I puzzle about this every day. Um, I think if you were to ask 100 people which country has the best handle on innovation in the region, 99 of those would say Brazil. They would say Brazil because Brazil for the longest period of time has thrown more money at it. Keep in mind that Latin American countries don't spend a lot of money on innovation. We typically think of science and technology. We think of like what share of the, of the overall economy is dedicated to science and technology or R&D policy, you know, 
And in Latin America, Brazil is the only country that for a long period of time has been even at 1% of GDP. Yeah. That's like two, that's like one half or one third of what say like the Koreans, the Chinese, you know, would be doing. Um, but Brazil's been doing it for a long time, more money, focusing on linking industry to public research. I think innovation has been inserted into the development strategy of Brazil, at least early, since the early 2000s, probably even longer. There's always been a really important state role in driving innovation in Brazil. It's a huge success story in agricultural biotechnology. Brazil is a major soy exporter, not just because they have soy, but because they were able to use agricultural biotech to make a big part of the region fertile for growing soy that it wasn't before that. That's an innovation story. Brazil is obviously one of the few developing countries that has a major aerospace industry. That's an innovation story. We may not like the fact that the, that the petroleum's coming out, of the, out from beneath the sea level. Uh, we might wish that petroleum was there for climate reasons, but that's an innovation story, the Petrobras ability to do that. There's pharma stuff as well. And so I, I, I said, if you ask 100 people, I think 99 would say Brazil, and I would be one of those 99. However, I'm actually tempted to say no one, because even in Brazil, there's not a lot of money. And, you know, it's a fight every year to keep this money. I mean, 1% or 1.2% of GDP on research and development, it's just not a lot of money and it's not enough. I also think that other countries warrant some attention. Um, and I'm gonna go back to something I said a minute ago when we were talking about COVID vaccines um, in Argentina. We need, like, we need production. And like, when AstraZeneca was basically scanning, the, scanning Latin America to find, who can we find in the region that could help us make this vaccine? We want, to make, we want to make a lot of it, but we need a lot more of it than we could make ourselves. And so let's, like, who in Latin America can make this for us? You know, they found uh, the Fiocruz in Rio de Janeiro to make, to make, they would make some of it with their help. And that was basically it. But they found essentially a, again, a biosimilars firm, a, bio, a pharmaceutical firm that makes basically, you know, antibodies. It's not an experienced vaccine producer. Um, and was able to work with them. This is a, these are fundamental capabilities that are there as a legacy of this country's long commitment to building the pharmaceutical sector. In some ways, it's a legacy of exactly what I discuss in my book. It's the fact that Argentina had a strong pharmaceutical sector is why it reacted the way it reacted in the 1990s and the 2000s. But it's also the reason why it's able to participate in this, what's now a really important global innovation effort, which is about creating back, building, making vaccines. Um, but let me just also say that I don't think we've actually fully gotten our heads around yet what innovation policy and really innovation looks like in middle income countries that are really, really far from the technological frontier. I think we have a tendency to think these countries need to do things so they could, so they could basically start innovating like we do in America or like we do in Britain. I don't think innovation policy can just be emulating what works in the US and Europe. There's too much of a gap, but I don't think what used to work in the 50s, 60s and 70s is, it is either. So I really do think this is the biggest, I don't have a good answer here. I mean, this is the biggest and most unanswered question in Latin American political economy today. 
what the right innovation policies are and what are sort of the political conditions that underpin that. And I would just say, just to give a plug to my colleague, Ava Paus, who's at Mount Holyoke, she's working on this as well. And I think she's doing some of the most interesting work uh, thinking about sort of what, what innovation means in this current period. And Ken, we're quickly um, reaching uh, the end of the program, but we can't let you leave without uh, in line with our tradition here to ask you when you get to travel next to the region, I'm sure there's some favorite haunts of yours um, in all these different countries. I wonder if you could share with us one or two. Um, who knows? Um, over time, maybe quickly we'll be able to put together a small little uh, travel guide for all our members of everyone's favorite spots um, throughout the region. So the Ken Shandlin, Shadlin recommendations are? Yeah, so, you know, I listened to one of your earlier podcasts where you asked previous people this, and uh, the, the guest that you had on, who's the Wall Street Journal uh, columnist in Brazil, mentioned uh, Inochim, the museum outside of Belo Horizonte in Brazil. It's absolutely fantastic. I was there last year, or uh, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Um, but my actual recommendation, I'm actually going to sort of talk about things literally at the other end of the cultural spectrum which is despite the fact that I am an American, or maybe I don't need to say that anymore, um, I'm a football fanatic. Uh, I've always been a football fanatic. So whenever I'm in Latin America, I go to, I, I go to the stadium. Uh, whatever country I'm in, I'm always in the stadium. And so, I mean, as a general thing is go to football matches, whether it's a local club match, you know, if it's a big game, it's hard to get a ticket. You know, it's, it's hard to see America against Chivas and Azteca. It's, but you know, it's, it's doable, it's great. Uh, let's go see Sao Paulo against Corinthians in Morumbi. It's a, it's a life-changing experience. I've never been to the Super Classico in Buenos Aires, but uh, I've been to tons of games there. Wonderful, stadium, wonderful stadiums that are tucked into the middle of the city in residential areas. It's great. So my recommendation is uh, go see lots of football. Uh, it's, what, it's what I will do as soon as this damn pandemic ends. I can imagine you have a great jersey collection too, uh, Ken. Um, anyhow, thank you very much, Ken. We've enjoyed our discussion um, and, um, and your availability um, even before the movie comes out. Anyhow, we'd like, we'd like to have you back again soon. Thank you very much. For everyone else, join us next week for another episode of Econopolitics. Until then, stay safe, stay well.